Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrity CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Thank you, Stephen A. Smith. This is Rashawn McDonald, and I'm the host of MoneyMakingConversation.com. I recognize that we all have different definitions of success. For you, it may be the size of your paycheck. Mine is helping people wake up and inspiring them to accomplish their goals and live their very best life. My guests on Money Making Conversations this week are civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump, president and CEO of the National Urban League, Mark Morial, the interim executive director at the Center for Law and Social Justice, Laree Daniel Favors, and he directs some of the hottest TV movies out there, Power Book 2, Ghost, Prodigal Son, Evil, Shameless, Blackish, Stargirl, and many more. My man, director extraordinaire, Rob Hardy. My next guest is all about planning, all about effort and watching his career grow. And it's a great career because it's about motivating people, uplifting people, giving them a voice in the community. That is, my next guest is attorney Ben Crump. He's a nationally recognized trial lawyer. I was still managing Steve Harvey and I saw him on TV representing Trayvon Martin. Then we met backstage at the Neighborhood Awards and we have become great friends. He had a dream to impact the lives of African-Americans in the justice system. Ben's fight for justice has covered many cases and his dedication to help families receive justice include Ahmaud Arbery, Martin Lee Anderson, Breonna Taylor, Jacob Blake, George Florida, and unfortunately, many others. All these families have turned to Mr. Crump to turn the spotlight of their injustice on their cases. Please welcome to Money Making Conversations attorney, Ben Crump. How you doing, mentor? Thank you, sir. I appreciate that title you're giving me. Because well, uh, it was at the Neighborhood Awards when we started talking about trying to have your voice elevated beyond the courtroom. And mm-hmm. you inspired me in ways and never, ever discouraged me. And because of that, you know, God has blessed me beyond anything we could have ever envisioned. Well, you know, the thing about it, you know, we've done television shows together and, and those shows are all about injustice. You know, and one of the famous quotes you always told me, if you want to see the justice system play out, just sit in the back of any courtroom in America. Tell us about that quote. Yeah, you know, when we did Evidence of Innocence, which I still think is one of the best shows that has ever been put on TV that you produced and helped uh, create this concept of seeing injustice everywhere in America. It's Mm -hmm. not foreign to any city or state. You right. go in any courtroom. You don't have to take Ben Crump word for it. Just sit in the back of the courtroom mm-hmm. and see how justice is being administered, that there are two justice systems that govern America, one for white America and one for others. And we saw mm-hmm. that play out in America when they stormed the Capitol, these Trump supporters, and right. they were treated completely different, Rashawn, than any uh, Black Lives Matter protests ever. I mm-hmm. mean, they were able to bust into the Capitol. I right. mean, you talk about no trespass charges, no property damage, no mm-hmm. assault, no battery, nothing. Nobody right. that day was arrested. And right. that's just prima facie evidence. But the mm-hmm. thing that I got from you, Rashawn, and people like my grandmother, is no matter how daunting it looks, you always got to keep a positive perspective. That's mm-hmm. why I love doing evidence of innocence with you mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. yeah, you recognize the injustice, but you right. know 
that we will overcome the injustice. And that's important that you say that because your 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 life, you know, you've been put in the spotlight, movie appearances, TV appearances, you even have an award show that's in Los Angeles. And we're gonna talk about that in a little bit. But the bottom line is fighting injustice. What bothers you the most about the cases that seem so eerily similar, similar, different states, different city, but it's the same case? What bothers me the most, Rashawn, is how they try to intellectually justify it. You know, mm. the unjustifiable actions that led to Breonna Taylor being killed in her own apartment. I mean, the sanctity of your home, they bust in the front door and they mutilate your daughter's body. And then mm -hmm. they tear her mother, her family. Well, technically, there are no grounds to charge the police officers. Mm -hmm. Or when you think about Philando Castile in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. sitting in the driver's seat, his girlfriend driving and their baby in the back. And right. he tells the police, I'm a registered gun owner. I have a gun in the glove compartment. You want me to get the registration and insurance. I have to reach in the glove compartment. He says all of this. But then when he goes and gets the uh, the items that the police ask for, he sees a gun, he sees black man, and he shoots. And yet mm -hmm. they intellectually justify that, Rashad. And mm -hmm. that's what is most troubling to me, because I often think about what Martin Luther King said in the letter from the Birmingham jail. Right. He said, just because they say it's legal, that doesn't mean it's right. He said that everything Hitler did to the Jews in Germany was legal, but that didn't make it right. He said slavery was legal, but that didn't make it right. He says segregation was legal, but that didn't make it right. And they try to tell us what they did to Trayvon Martin and Breonna Taylor and Eric Gardner and so many others was legal. But I stand on my bully pulpit every chance I get to remind America, no matter what you say is legal, that doesn't make it right. Well, you know, I'm talking to uh, civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump, well-renowned, fame. But fame has a cutting edge because you go in airports, people recognize you. Uh, you go in restaurants, people recognize you. And then you take on a responsibility of that sometimes you can't deliver what people's expectations are. I knew when we met backstage at the neighborhood many years ago, now looking at you now, your social media is on fire your television at will, front page of various newspaper articles. How has that affected your life, both professionally and personally? You know, uh, thank God I have a wonderful wife and mm -hmm. uh, strong family support that allow me to do the important work I do. Um, in fact, it's so funny, Rashad, that Netflix uh, is doing a documentary of my life, or the work I do, I shouldn't say my life. I mm -hmm. want to believe I got a lot more living to go. Thank you. <laughs> um, but Nadia Hallgren, who is the award-winning director who directed Michelle Obama's Becoming, the most mm -hmm. watched documentary in Netflix history, mm -hmm. is uh, now doing a documentary on uh, my work. And the one thing I tell her, Rashad, is keep up. You all are going to follow me for a year. 
I mean, keep up because so much happens in the course of a week that that's my always worst nightmare that I'm running out of time, that Mm -hmm. they are creating these hashtags too much. They're killing our children too fast that we can barely keep up. I mean, every other week seems like there is another hashtag. And Mm -hmm. so that's what we're fighting. I told my eight-year-old daughter, Brooklyn, as I left home the day after Christmas going to Columbus, Ohio, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because Andre Hill was killed a couple of days before Christmas holding a cell phone. And the video demonstrated very clearly that he was unarmed. And while he was on the ground grasping for breath, they then had a supervisor come up after five minutes and said, he is still breathing, handcuff him. And they did that. And so my daughter was trying to understand, but daddy, why do you have to leave the day after Christmas? And I told her, well, baby, unfortunately, police brutality and implicit bias don't take a break, not even for Christmas. And so that family lost their father. And even though it's inconvenient for me to leave you Mm -hmm. on Christmas Mm -hmm. holiday, can you imagine how inconvenient, baby, it is for that family who mm-hmm. lost their father forever? And my baby told me, Daddy, I understand. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's great. Now, it was, you know, these, all these cases are outrageous, but you was, you was involved in the case in the Houston-Galveston area where a police officer or a sheriff was on a horse and he had a rope around a black man's neck as he walked him down the street. Tell us the status of that case and tell and explain to everybody exactly in detail what went down with that case. It was a homeless man who had mental health issues mm-hmm. and uh, the police, for reasons that are still inexplicable, instead of putting him in the patrol car and mm-hmm. taking him to the jail for lottering, mm-hmm. they put a rope around his neck while he and his partner were on horseback. Right. And they rode him down through the middle of town. Mm-hmm. When Galveston, Texas, as we remember, uh, Rashawn was one of the last places yes. where the slaves were freed. And so they literally walked this black man in 2019. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's Galveston, still unbelievable when you look at that imagery. Like 45, 45 so, miles outside of Houston. It's a booming metropolis. This is not a little, little, little cow town, a little small town hidden way down in the south. Galveston has an annual uh, Mardi Gras festival. You know, my, my, my frat brother, he's from Galveston. Galveston ball, big football powerhouse down there. So you're not talking about someplace that's, that's distant or off the map. Like you said, when you said walking downtown, you walking them downtown in front of a prominent neighborhood, a tourist mecca. Yeah. And to answer your question directly, the civil matter has been resolved. Mm-hmm. We represented on the civil matter, but the Justice Department is still investigating the matter. But the problem I have, Rushan, is that the officer is still working on the force. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and I had Michael Eric Dyson, who you know, and uh, yes. his book is amazing. 
And uh, the details that he gave me on the Armand Arbery case was scary. You know, because you had the one guy who's don't wants to be a part of the case. Somebody he was just videotaping. Would you? I mean, you were the first to call that he should be arrested. I remember you said he should be arrested. He should be arrested, and eventually he was arrested. When you hear the whole story play out, it's even more crazy how they attacked and hunted down this young man, blocked his 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 point of traffic, and trapped him. Yeah, Rashad, it is just outrageous to think that in 2020, we're not talking about 1930 and 1940, we're talking about in 2020, a young man was lynched in broad daylight for jogging while black. And Mm -hmm. as you correctly stated, they chased him. I Mm -hmm. mean, they chased him for over five minutes. So -hmm. this is not like something where he wasn't trying to get away, he was doing everything in his power to get Mm -hmm. away from this lynch mob, this murderous father and son duo. And so Mm -hmm. what ended up happening, and you see it on the video, Mm -hmm. is when they corner him, this Mm -hmm. guy who's recording, who tries to act like he was not involved, even though there's text messages that suggest otherwise. But when he cornered him, then Ahmad, you hear the notion, fight or flight. Well, right. Ahmad had did everything he could to take flight from mm-hmm. these uh, nefarious actors. But mm-hmm. then at that point, he literally had to fight for his life. But unfortunately, it was him fighting with his hands and them fighting with a shotgun. Right. A shotgun, Rashad. That is what they use to take down an elephant when it escapes the zoo. Mm-hmm. My experts tell me, unlike a gunshot wound that you can survive because it's a single projectile that -hmm. comes out. But they explained to me a shotgun, there are multiple projectiles Mm -hmm. that come out and the entry room is small. But -hmm. when those bullets go in, then they expand. They Mm -hmm. say the exit wound, and there will always be an exit wound with a Mm -hmm. shotgun. He said, a gunshot, Mm -hmm. the bullet might stay inside you, but with a shotgun, it's going to exit out. And when you look at that video, you see exactly what the experts say. They said that the exit wound could be as big as a coffee cup saucer. Mm. And so you see at the last part of that video when Ahmad turns and runs and you see the blood spot on his back expand. You Mm -hmm. see it's like a teacup saucer. And Mm -hmm. that is the tragedy of the lynching of Ahmad Arbery. And thank God we had video because I believe that is the only reason why this murderous father and son duo, Travis and Greg McMichaels and their friend was charged. And that trial will be coming in Georgia uh, by the Cobb County District Attorney. Let's let's talk about that for a minute. Like, because you immediately, and I'm talking to attorney, civil rights attorney, Benjamin Crump here. The third guy, the videotape guy, when did you realize that he should be you know, prosecuted, that he should be arrested too. Yeah, you know, his story didn't quite add up when he said, well, he just saw Ahmad running and he just decided that he must be up to no good. Let me get in my car, grab my videotape. I just want to record it. Right, right. Well, at some point, 
if you see these guys got guns and they're chasing this black guy, why wouldn't you call the police to mm -hmm. say, hello? Even if Ahmad did something wrong, we shouldn't have these people with guns taking the law into their own hand. We should have people who are professionals to deal with this situation. But he didn't do that. And that was telling to me and our co-counsel. We said, no, nah, this story doesn't add up. And then we found out that they had a active conversation. When this young man runs through the neighborhood, mm -hmm. we're going to get him the next time he runs through here. Oh, okay, cool. Of course, uh, I want to transition to the case that um, changed the world, changed this country, uh, brought white people out of the streets, into the streets, I should say, protesting George Floyd. I, 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 a key part of my interview with you is that because you was on ground zero with that and you saw some things that nobody else can see but experienced it personally. Why did George Floyd have the impact? His racial injustice through the hands of four police officers changed this country and this world. You know, mentor, many people ask me that question. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it about George Floyd that galvanized people all across America, galvanized people all across the globe? And what I tell them is that, you know, most of us in society had gotten used to seeing reality TV. Mm -hmm. But we were still shocked to see the documentary of a human being literally being tortured to death by the people who were supposed to protect and serve mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. I mean, the documentary of a man being murdered. And mm -hmm. even more shocking, Rashawn, was the fact that he narrated the right. documentary of his own death. I mean, you hear him say, I can't breathe right. 28 times. And then he says, you know, I can't feel my insides. I can't feel my legs. He say, tell my children, I love them. Right. And then he calls out for his mother, mm -hmm. even though his mother had been dead two years prior to this tragic incident. But again, our experts tell us, our psychological experts tell us, when you are conscious that you may be leaving this world, the life is escaping your body. Mm -hmm. You think back to when you first came in this world and who was your first protector. For many of us, that person was our mother. Right. And so they say it's very logical to hear George Floyd calling out for his mama as this guy has his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds while another officer has two knees on his back compressing mm -hmm. the diaphragm uh, where he can't take oxygen in and expend oxygen to be able to breathe. And the fact that they offer him no humanity, no professionalism, no consideration. I mean, it is heartbreaking 
to watch that video. And the reason I think people were marching in cities all across America and cities all across the world is because once you see that video, you cannot unsee it. It has a permanent impression on your psyche. And that is why George Floyd literally changed the world and why we have the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that has passed the United States House of Representatives and with the victory in Georgia returning control of the Senate to the Democratic Party, we believe the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act will be signed into law by President-elect Joe Biden and mm -hmm. President-elect Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, my dear friend, who mm -hmm. will be president and vice president, I'm proud to say. Now, let me ask you this. What is the law? Explain to my listeners and my viewers. Oh, the George Floyd Justice and uh, Police and Accountability Act is an uh, act that is very, very uh, inclusive of many of the things that the Congressional Black Caucus has fought for for decades. Mm -hmm. It includes uh, on a abolishing the chokehold. Many people wow. are not aware, Rashawn, that the chokehold is legal in many cities across America. And the fact that 70% of the time the chokehold mm -hmm. is executed by police, it's against people of color, especially mm -hmm. minorities uh, who are men. And mm -hmm. then it's a, a abolishing the no-knock warrants, which again, is disproportionately executed against black people in America that led to the death of Breonna Taylor. And it was foreseeable that if you keep knocking in black people houses at one in the morning, that an innocent victim like a Breonna Taylor would be killed. Right. And they're not knocking in the doors of our white brothers and sisters. No, they're mm -hmm. doing this to black people in America. And so it abolishes that. But then it also speaks to transparency, which is the body camera video. The fact that you have to have your body camera on when you engage a citizen uh, mm -hmm. for any confrontation. And if they are brutalized and if they are at worst killed and you didn't have that body camera on, mm -hmm. it is a rebuttable presumption that you did something nefarious or inappropriate or illegal. And you have to then, we're not saying take the police officers due process of the law away from him. You're all innocent into proving guilty. Right. However, right. there will be a rebuttable presumption that you now have to prove that there was not something you did illegal as to why that body camera was on. And finally, or when I should say two more important things, mm -hmm. it deals with having a national registry. We don't have any national count or registry of the number of police involved shootings mm -hmm. and killings and wrongful deaths in America. And so now the George Floyd Act will have the FBI keep track of all of those statistics, as well as the complaints against mm -hmm. police officers. So like in Tamir Rice, the 12 year old who was killed in Cleveland, Ohio, mm -hmm. by a guy who had been fired six months earlier, left one police department, 
and went right up the street to Cleveland and got another job. So people don't know because there's no national registry that monitors all of this here. And then finally, this notion of qualified immunity that the Supreme Court of the United States has said, you know, you can't Monday morning quarterback the police. Uh, you, You were not there. And so if he says he had a reasonable fear because you know that's what the Supreme Court has said. All the police have to do is say three words. Yeah. I felt fear. I felt mm-hmm. threatened. And mm-hmm. then they say, but well, he's justified in using deadly force. force. Even if the young black person was running away from them, kind of like in Jacob Blake Jr. in Kenosha, Wisconsin, like mm-hmm. Laquan McDonald in Chicago, Illinois, mm-hmm. like Walter Scott in uh South Carolina, Carolina, like Terrence Crutcher, walking away with his hands up in broad daylight in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, in so many other cases, Stephon Clark running in Sacramento, California, in his grandmother's backyard, and they shoot us in the back. And the Supreme Court said, well, all the officer got to do is say, I felt threatened. And that is enough to justify these unjustifiable acts. So George Floyd Justice and Policing Accountability Act is saying that, no, no, you have to have an objective, reasonable articulation right. to use deadly force. Not just that this subjective fear, this imaginary fear mm-hmm. that you well, felt threatened because of the color of a person's oh, skin. skin. Let me ask you this, because I text you several times, because especially during the George Floyd, the COVID-19 was raging. We didn't know... We definitely had no vaccine at the time. The country was shut down in the month. of It started to reopen in May. And I was worried, man. And you were still out there on the front lines. You, you wore a mask. Sometimes I didn't see you with a mask on. I was worried. I texted you. I said, brother, keep that mask on. I love you. And then you have to go home. Talk about that whole journey because you had a job to do. But then also you were putting yourself on the front lines of danger with COVID-19. Talk about that run. Yeah, you know, I had stayed home literally for about two months. Didn't leave the house, you know, I was trying to follow all the rules. And then George Floyd happened. Mm -hmm. And it was something about seeing that video that I said I, I can't not go to fight for justice for this family when they call me heartbroken. You know, his brother Falonis uh, reminded me of Sabrina Fulton. Uh, all they could do is cry because, and Sabrina Fulton was Trayvon Martin's mother when we first mm-hmm. started. It was just overran with emotions. As he said, you know, I slept in the bed as a little brother with my big brother. And to mm-hmm. see them, I mean, kill him like that, man, we gotta have justice. We, we need you, Ben Crump, and, you know, so often I tell people that when God give us these blessings and these mm-hmm. talents and these fancy law degrees, it's to go out and try to help the least of these, the people who don't have a voice, the people who are disenfranchised, victimized, and marginalized. And so mm-hmm. I had to answer the bell. And then after George Floyd, you had Breonna Taylor. After Breonna Taylor, you had Jacob Blake. After Jacob mm-hmm. Blake, you had Andre Hill. And for too long, 
<laughs> you know, I was back to doing what Ben Crump do as Reverend Al Sharpton <laughs> says, you know, Ben Crump, you are Black America's Attorney General. Thank you very much. That's how you end the interview. The Attorney General of Black America, Civil Rights Attorney Ben Crump, my frat brother, Omega Sci-Fi from Trayvon Martin. Man, I tell you, the journey is never going to stop for you, but the love that America has for you, you feel it every time you go in the airport, every time you sit down in a restaurant, people respect what you're doing. And all I remember, man, when we was at the Neighborhood Awards to Rishon, I just want to make a difference, man. I just want to let people know the talent that God has given me and let it shine on people so I can help them in the justice system. And that's what you've been doing, Ben. I love you for it, man. Hey, I love you, Mentor. And thank you so much for inspire people with money-making conversations. <laughs> hey, hey, right on that back. Hey, Ben, when you come into town, I got you to, you got to sign my picture. Your picture right there on that back wall, brother. I love you, man. I can't wait. I can't wait. I love you, Frank. <laughs> All right. My next guest is about planning. He started early in life, and I call him a very good friend. We've seen each other many times. His name is Mark Mario. He's the president and CEO of the National Urban League. The National Urban League is the nation's largest historic civil rights and urban advocacy organization. Mark is a leading voice on the national stage in the battle for jobs, education, housing, and voting rights equity. With 90 National Urban League affiliates across the country serving 300 communities, they address it all, education, jobs, health, housing, and voting, and most important, civic engagement. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, my friend, Mark Morial. Hey, Rashawn, my pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> happy New Year to you, and uh, happy Kwanzaa, and happy <laughs> Merry Christmas, and uh, all that good stuff. And I know I'm coming at you late. And uh, a little bit early, Happy King Day. I appreciate it because it's coming. And I guess we and we about the uh, our president, vice president elect, about to change the world in this month. Tell me about that. Yeah, and that. Uh, you know, today I was on a on a call with members of the president elect's team, mm -hmm. talking about COVID, talking about racial justice, and also mm -hmm. talking about this insurrection mm -hmm. uh, that just took place at the Capitol. So these are very demanding, tough, and difficult times, but. Uh, I think uh, there's great anticipation uh, mm -hmm. for the coming of the Biden administration uh, mm -hmm. and the exiting of the Trump administration. But what we've seen over the last week uh, is is nothing short of uh, distressing, repulsive, obnoxious right. and criminal. Yes. Now, when you say all these things, let's let's go back a little bit. When uh, President Obama won his first term, he had control of the House and the Senate, but he still was blocked. Right now, Biden has control of the House and the Senate. When the Senate, the vote will be broken by our Vice President Kamala Harris. Do you feel he will be able to do things versus? And we know the racism. I think, he's gonna, a lot I think of the he things. can do things. I think he's going to have to number one, get off to a fast start an right. immediate start uh, to take advantage of the momentum and the consensus and the coalition he's built. Right. I think number two, he's going to have to continue to be visible uh, and, and, and talking to the people uh, about the transformation and change and his vision for the country and how the steps he takes further that vision. Uh, and then I think number three, mm -hmm. uh, he's going to have to, continue to reach out to wide numbers of people uh, to engage with them 
uh, across the board. I don't think he can be a Rose Garden president. I think he's got to get out and about, even in the midst of COVID, to the right. best that he can to engage mm -hmm. with people. So I think he has a shot. Now, he's going to have to keep Democrats unified in the House and the Senate and try to pick up some Republican support, which is not easy given the times in which we live. Uh, but I think there's a great deal of anticipation. Look, Donald Trump is leaving behind a recession. Right. And not to be partisan or political, he's the third Republican president in a row to leave a recession behind. Right. He leaves job losses, deep economic pain. Mm -hmm. George Bush the second left job losses and deep economic pain and the Great Recession. If you go all the way back to the 90s, George Bush the first left a recession uh, that Clinton had to address when he took office. Now, let's talk about what role would the National Urban League, you the president and CEO of that, what role do you play in all this? We play the role of being a legislative advocate and a policy advocate. Mm -hmm. We play the role of being an advocate for what the black community and communities of color and urban communities want and need. Uh, we also play the role in helping to mobilize the public in favor of those things we think that are good and in opposition to those things we think are bad. And we also play a crucial role. We execute policy. No one does it better. Mm -hmm. No one has a stronger track record than we do when it comes to after-school program for youth, when it comes to home buyer education programs for people who want to become home buyers, mm -hmm. when it comes to workforce development and helping people get jobs, or working now, as we've done for the last 15 years, in the small business space. We execute policy from a nonprofit civil rights platform through the network of 90 Urban League affiliates. I've got 90 of the most talented uh, individuals, men and women, uh, across the nation who run, who manage, lead our programs and our advocacy at the national, at the national level, at the local level, I should say. So that is the role we're going to play. Uh, today, I was in a meeting with the Biden transition team last mm -hmm. week, several meetings a week before that, we had a meeting with the president-elect himself and Vice President-elect Harris. This is going to be an important time when we've got to move quickly, move quickly, right? move quickly, mm -hmm. move quickly. Now, let me ask you this, Mark. You know, we talked in May when your book, uh, Gumbo Coalition, came out, and I thought it was one of the fantastic books of 2020. And it was all about diversity. It was all Thank about you. bringing people together. And it was a five-point plan in that book. Talk about that book and what, because my whole thing is that I always tell people, a good read's a good read. A good lesson's a good lesson. That book had a, plenty of great lessons in it. Talk about that book for a minute. So I just want to remind that book, people. Uh, you know, central to that book, Rashawn, is the idea when a new administration starts, they've got to have a solid plan and get off on the good foot and get off mm -hmm. on a fast foot. And mm -hmm. nothing's more important at the very beginning when a new administration's popularity, their support, uh, their, uh, their credibility is usually the highest at the very beginning. That book also talks about what you do in the face of emergencies. The mm -hmm. insurrection was an emergency. And emergencies can paralyze leaders, paralyze governments, paralyze businesses, how you have to respond to the emergency. You have to put the interests of people and their safety at the front of an emergency. And so you can't be paralyzed. So we tell these lessons 
Uh, and we tell the lessons of, of, of working together and collaboration and unity. In this environment, for mm-hmm. us to work together as a nation, in these times, we must cut out the cancer of racism. Mm-hmm. If we can't get beyond racism and hate, building strong coalitions is going to ever be more difficult. Did Donald Trump do anything good during his four years as a president? Look, the First Step Act, which was a modest, if you will, but important step that positively impacted several thousand people, Mm -hmm. uh, is something that Donald Trump signed uh, through Jared Kushner's support. It wasn't perfect. It didn't go far enough. Uh, but it did take a step in the right direction. Right. Uh, Donald Trump took more credit for that than he deserved yeah. because that was, original bill was a bill of Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, mm-hmm. a bill that Congressman Cedric Richmond supported, mm-hmm. a bill that uh, 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 many, many others in the Congress had pushed for years. Donald mm-hmm. Trump kind of jumped on board late. And yeah, his support helped push it over the finish line. So I would single that out as one piece of legislation, but everything else he did, his rhetoric, his tone, his lack of diversity in his appointments, this insurrection, uh, his racial rhetoric, sort of take away his legacy. His legacy is damaged, his legacy is spoiled. I don't see how I can draw any other conclusion except that he's the worst president in modern American history. And that's, that's sad because the fact that um, he played on everybody's uh, weaknesses. He played on fear. He was a bully. Uh, he's used social media as that bully. Being that I'm based in Georgia, I got to see it firsthand. I got to see what he did with the Secretary of State Rassenberger, the governor, uh, Gabrielle Sterling. And then you saw out of that a Phoenix Rose, Stacey Abrams. Tell us about your, your Look, thoughts Stacey on her and what Abrams she accomplished. And Raphael Warnock and Keisha Lance Bottoms and uh, Hank Johnson. And I could continue to name leaders in, uh, in Georgia. Uh, the great ambassador, Andrew Young, is a moral voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ro- Georgia rose in the spirit of Martin Luther King, in the spirit mm-hmm. of Maynard Jackson, in the spirit <laughs> of Andy Young. That coalition came together for Ossoff, for Warnock, and for Biden. It was a powerful thing. And it's... Uh, uh, it will always be remembered because it tipped the balance. Yes, it did. The gentle balance and gave power to the Democrats at a time when doing it is so important to the future of the country. Should we be? Should we feel good now? Should we feel there is a a, a voice in the White House that would listen? I think we should feel that there's now an opportunity to be optimistic. Yes. And I say an opportunity to be optimistic because amidst all this pain, amidst all these potential foreclosures and evictions, amidst the threats of violence that are being, uh, if you will, communicated on the Internet, uh, I can't celebrate. I can't spike the ball. I can't pop any champagne. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not time for a traditional celebration. It is time. It is time uh, for us to cast our eyes on the future and begin to work and keep our sleeves rolled up and continue continue to plow, continue to wreck, to continue to row, continue to work.
You know, you crossed that stage as a mayor in the city of New Orleans at a very early age, Mark, and just to see the journey and uh, many times you came on the Steve Harvey Morning Show talking and having passion. What I like, what I love about you is that you've seen change and you created change. Talk about that early journey when you first had an oh. official voice as a mayor. Well, I got elected amidst a crisis in my own city. Mm -hmm. uh, almost 500 murders a year, uh, a broken economy, no program for youth. And and it was uh, I was motivated by cause the cause to fix and change and revive a place that I loved and cherished, my beloved hometown of New Orleans. And, uh, you know, we built a team mm -hmm. of young people, old people, black people, white people. Hispanics and Asians, we built a team of people and just got down to being about the business. Politics was not a beginning nor an end. Mm -hmm. Politics was simply a means to make change in the lives of people. So I had that incredible opportunity as a man in my mid-30s to lead uh, New Orleans and certainly a tremendous opportunity now for the last 17 years to lead this historic civil rights organization. Well, I hope you understand why I got you on this call. Listen to what you said when you came in 36 years of age, in New Orleans, civil unrest, murders, economy was out of control. There was no direction. I said, um, I told my staff, I said, I got to talk to Mark. I said, because he's the king of the gumbo coalition. He's the campaign of understanding that people need to work together to to win together. And when I, when I talk about when we see Basically, when I look at the Biden ticket, it's a gumbo coalition. You have Biden. Biden has put together, Rashawn, Biden's put together a, a gumbo. Lloyd Austin, Marsha mm -hmm. Fudge, uh, Javier Becerra, uh, Pete <laughs> Buttigieg. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's put together a, a, a ticket uh, that is as varied and diverse as any, or rather, mm -hmm. an administration mm -hmm. uh, so far that is varied as diverse as any in American history. Well, we now, I want to talk about the, the empowering communities and changing lives, the five-point empowerment agenda that you have out there. Because my whole thing about the National Urban League is that there's a plan there. When you got there, there wasn't a plan. In your book, you talk about that. And, we you have know, from focus. We focus mm -hmm. on five areas. Mm -hmm. uh, we focus on five areas, and we focus on programs, policy, and mm -hmm. thought leadership. Mm -hmm. And we're very focused on the areas that we focus on. We focus on education. Right. We focus on jobs. We focus on housing, health. Uh, we focus on uh, justice issues. And when we focus on those issues, every organization needs a focus. You can't be an ambulance chaser. Now, sometimes you got to be the ambulance. Right. But you can't chase ambulances and civil rights and be effective. You got to respond to crises. But you got to have a solid, proactive plan. And that's what the National Urban League does. That's why we serve uh, almost 2 million people a year. That's why we've got this dynamic network of 90 affiliates across the nation with talented men and women doing the important work of the Urban League movement. That's why uh, we have uh, 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 sustained ourselves and survived now. For 110 years. Well, well, Mark, I know I didn't. I can't keep you long. I wanted. To I appreciate you, Rashawn. Let's do it again. Mm -hmm. I appreciate your leadership. Appreciate your voice. Appreciate your friendship, and appreciate the chance to be on uh, with you for another conversation. Once again, Gumbo Coalition. You can buy it at uh, 
bookstore near you or online. God bless you, Rashad. All right, then. Thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations. If you want to hear more Money Making Conversations interview, please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. We'll be right back with more from Rashawn McDonald and Money Making Conversations. Don't touch that dial. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald, the host of Money Making Conversations. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award is a celebration of black men who are making a difference in our community by empowering others to reach their life goals. From civic leaders, businessmen, activists, celebrities, and everyday dads, the Cafe Mocha Swag Award winner this week is Bishop T.D. Jakes. If you long to maximize your unique abilities and aptitudes, if you strive to combine personal fulfillment with professional satisfaction, if you dream of creating exceptional goods and offering transformative services for others, then you are ready to soar. Most entrepreneurs, the, the same thing that made them great is killing them. They're so busy doing the work that they don't get a chance to think the work, and they cannot confuse busyness with business. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award represents men that have strength, their vision is assertive, and they are genuine in their spirit. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is a planner, an activist. She's a lot of things, but more importantly, Larie Daniel Favors is on my show. Larie Daniel Favors is an activist, radio host, author, and attorney with a long-standing commitment to racial and social justice. She currently serves as an interim executive director at the Center for Law and Social Justice. There's a lot going on today, y'all, from politics to economics to social, civil, and civil unrest on both sides, I like to believe. Attorney Favors is on my show to talk about it and the upcoming inauguration. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, Larie Daniel Favors. Did I get it out correctly, Larissa? You did, sir. You did indeed. And thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, first, first of all, you know, knowing your schedule, knowing your background, let's 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 get into your background because I always like to tell people, you know, you you, you are a uh, radio host, so you a lot of time on Sirius XM. Your voice is heard there. What what direction do you want to take your career and or your brand? You know, it's interesting. I remember when I was a, a little girl, I actually wanted to be a doctor. I had no interest mm-hmm. in the law whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I had this dream that I was going to be, I was going to deliver babies um, for communities uh, that I wanted to live in, Black communities largely. And I, I planned on having a clinic where I would deliver the babies of the mothers. The mothers would enroll their children into classes that I had, I was going to have at this clinic. And then the mothers would work in the clinic with me and we would create in, in my seven year, eight year old mind. I was literally trying to think of a cooperative uh, health care service that was going to be able to meet the needs uh, of people in my community. Uh, I stuck with that dream for a really long time. And I'm Gen X. Uh, and I grew up in a time where girls not being good at math and science was still kind of a thing. Like we didn't have Doc McStuffins when I was little. Uh, my mm-hmm. daughter has that now. Her, her possibilities are completely mm-hmm. wide open. And as a result of that, I did not get along well with math or science. And so I realized that uh, the doctoring field was probably not going to be where I ended up staying in in the medical community. Um, When I was 17 years old, one of my uncles took me to hear a civil rights speaker, Mm -hmm. an attorney, uh, Alton Maddox. And I believe it was at the Slave Theater in, in New York City. And I was completely enraptured with everything that this man had to say. He was speaking a lot of truth to fire. He was speaking to all the issues that I'd cared about. You know, my my parents raised me to be very um, engaged with what was happening in our community. You know, loving Black people proactively was really a part of my education as a child. Um, And when I heard him speak, I said, okay, 
I'm going to have to let go of this clinic idea because math and science <laughs> and I are not getting along. I'm going to law school and I'm going to use right. the law to make black people's lives better in some way, shape or form. And that's sort of the track and the trajectory that I've been on ever since. Um, I've been engaged in community activism since my days in college. Uh, my friends and I put together an organization that, you know, decades later is still in existence. And as far as where I want my career to go, I definitely see it on that path, using my my passion, using my training as an attorney um, and as someone who has an expertise in racial justice to really create an environment and an opportunity to where we are setting our own tables. We are able to bring our own chairs, prepare our own food, and then we can invite other people to our table instead of needing to constantly feel as though we have to be invited to someone else's. Uh, wow. So that's, you know, I, I don't know what that means in terms of next moves I would make politically or, or right. professionally, but that's certainly the trajectory I see myself on. Well, first of all, my degree is in mathematics. So, you know, I'll just let you know that. Don't beat me up. And my, <laughs> my minor is very similar to yours in sociology because I mm. have a strong emphasis in African-American studies. Yeah. And I tell everybody, uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would have minored in sociology because African-American studies changed my life. Because yeah, I realized what, what was... School is really a, a farce because they don't teach you or tell you the true reality. And that's why Confederate flags are cool in the South, because if you actually did the proper education that showed the Jim Crow processes and how blacks really contributed to this world, then white people would be ashamed to mm. hang those flags in the South. How did African-American studies have an impact on your life? You know, I think that's a great question, because what I actually have come to believe is that every black college student. And, and it's a shame that it takes getting to college to get access to this information, right? You know, my husband and I often talk about the fact that, you know, we have all these professional degrees and outside of my Africana studies degree, uh, which I majored in in college, I really had no other space in my education that prepared me for what it is that I'm doing today. And mm -hmm. I feel as though every black student who is so privileged to be able to go to college needs to either double major in African and African-American studies or minor in it if it's not their primary major. And I think it's important because we don't just need political scientists. We need political scientists who know how to take the wisdom of one of the best political scientists, Marcus Garvey, and fuse them with what our issues are today. We don't just need entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs who can tap into the genius that Booker T. Washington did have. I know that, you know, there's some controversy there, but he was on to something. Uh, he and <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois, there shouldn't have been a debate because we needed both of what they had to say. But we need entrepreneurs who are able to take the Booker T. Washington uh, approach to trade and to skills development and marry it with the job needs that we have in our community right now. We don't just need black medical doctors. We need black medical doctors who have an expertise in the health conditions uh, and the environment that produce the health outcomes uh, that black communities find ourselves in. Why? Because we need them to build hospitals. We need them to, to lead research. We need them to engage in, in the types of study that is going to center our physical needs. We, we don't just need black bankers and financers. We need black bankers and financers who understand black economics and who can take a Claude Anderson's message, who can look at a uh, message, who can look at uh, what it means to have a legacy of black banking and recognizing the limitations of focusing solely on black banking within a, a racially driven capitalist system and create economic models that are going to not only uh, empower us through employment, but how do we grow wealth? within a society where we are at the bottom and having to pull ourselves up. We need black professionals who aren't just black professionals. We don't just need people getting jobs and great paychecks. We need them to have the knowledge that is going to be necessary to create solutions so that our community can get the benefit. And so I would encourage every parent 
if you have children who, is, who are looking to go into college, whether they're going to an HBCU or a PWI, majoring in Africana studies is one of the best things they can do, in, even if, if it's a double major, even if it's a minor, quite frankly, right. uh, because we don't have, as you said, any spaces where we're able to learn this history. And when you don't know who you are, and, and Marcus Garvey tells us the people who are without knowledge of their history, without knowledge of their past, their culture, their origins, are like trees with no roots. And we do not have the luxury of having Black uh, excellence and intellectual prowess that is not grounded in that history so that they're producing the solutions that our people can benefit from. Well, here's the beauty of conversation we're about to have because of being, in, I, I made, I minored in sociology. You majored it. You got a degree, BA in African and African American studies. Your minor is in Spanish language. I yes. must admit, I'm very limited in that conversation. So we won't even go there. We won't go there. We'll go there. Even though I grew up in Houston, Texas. Now, Booker T. Washington, because you brought him up. I wasn't going to bring him up in this conversation because he's renowned in the black community. But when you hear his story, he felt that black people were should be subservient in my tone and my learnings to white people because mm -hmm. white people, they can get great maids, they're great mechanics, all. And that's where W.B. Du Bois had issues with him because he felt that, sure, you're educating African-Americans or black people or Negroes at the time, but you're telling them that's all they could do. When mm. W.B. Du Bois was saying we should be able to do anything, you know, in, in conversation. Am I right in that assessment in comparison? You learned it your way. I learned it my way. But but Booker T. Washington really, in some ways, was a disappointment, even though he had the voices of all the all the right white people, the rich ones, the Rockefellers. They all went to him for information. And so when he told them this is what black people can do, it, in some ways, it created a, uh, an image of our we want unlimited in our opportunities. Mm. We were limited in our opportunities based on his conversations. So I think that what you raise is a really good point. And I love the juxtaposition between Du Bois and Booker mm -hmm. T. Washington. And I think it's important that we recognize that a lot of times in history, you have these, these massive debates between these giants of our history. Right. And if you're able to pull back a bit and, and bring yourself back from the forest, from the trees to look at the individual tree, to look at the whole forest, what we see is often there are truths in every single one of their arguments, many yes. of them, right? For Booker T. Washington, advocating the truth the routes to trades, advocating the, the use of our hands, manual labor. For him, I think what he was saying is that even if we take this college route, even if we get our students into college, and at that time, you know, Carter G. Woodson tells us a lot about the early era of, of educating Black people in this country. And Carter G. Woodson, in his book, The Miseducation of the Negro, he talks a lot about the fact that you've got Black people in school who are learning Latin, they're learning Greek history. Mm -hmm. They're becoming mm -hmm. professors of, you know, the great <laughs> romance languages, you know, things of that nature. And yet the peanut farmer who is an immigrant who cannot speak English can come to this country having just got here last month, open up a peanut cart and will go become rich by selling to those of us black people who are off in colleges learning the trades and learning the great romance languages. And I think what what we find that kind of brings each of those three men and their bodies of thought together is the idea that, yes, we need people who are able to go off into the humanities and to study uh, uh, what it means to to engage in philosophy. But if the philosophy is Western philosophy, right. and if the philosophy is harmfully uh, exclusionary to black interests and to the black existence, then that philosophy and black people majoring in that type of philosophy for their academic study does us a disservice. I, I think that when we're looking at where we're at right now today, I have a very good friend of mine 
uh, who's a, a phenomenal, uh, brilliant guy, finance. And, you know, he's done a lot of work in the finance industry. He's a VP at one of the big banks. And, you know, my husband and I, we were at lunch with a friend of ours and, and he's there and we're introducing them and realizing they work at the same bank. You know, both of them are VPs <laughs> at the same bank. And we're like, oh, well, you guys must already know each other. You're both at the same. And, and, and they didn't know each other. And one mm -hmm. of them laughs and says, you know, we might all be black and we might all be bankers, but too many black people gathered in the, at the water cooler makes a lot of our white colleagues nervous. And, you know, we laughed it off and it was a ha ha ha. But later on, it struck me that we have these two examples of brilliant black men who have mm -hmm. done everything that we have asked of them. They've gone on to school, they've got successful jobs, they're, they're making their way, making good money, donating to the community. And yet, even with being masters in their profession, they were limited in their ability to even bring their requisite areas of, 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 of expertise together to build something that our community could benefit from. Mm -hmm. And right now we're in an area and an environment where you have uh, the numbers of our people who are in the criminal justice system or criminal justice involved as compared to college students are comparable. Right now we have a reality where uh, most of us who are black professionals, who are employed uh, in, in white institutions and white owned spaces, um, we're often the last hired, which means that whenever rounds of, 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 of uh, reductions in force come about, we're mm -hmm. often the first fired. We are mm -hmm. in an environment where we have to sue corporate entities to hire enough of us. And we have to hold over these corporate entities the threat that by not hiring us and not having diverse workspaces, they will then have to face uh, some sort of, of accusations of discrimination. Nation. If we are talking about an economy that is largely based on black students mastering the skills of whiteness, that Latin, that Greek, uh, learning uh, how to present in a way that's going to make our teachers uh, believe in us and not fear us by the time we transition from third grade to fourth grade, uh, that year in between where a lot of black boys go from being cute little Tyrone to, oh my gosh, Tyrone is making me nervous. You're so big and aggressive. <laughs> Maybe you should be in special ed, right? We have an environment where our economic success models require black children to master uh, white knowledge in it and present it in a way that is acceptable to white people so that we make them comfortable enough that they will then hire us, uh, give us entree into their economic pathways to success. I think when we look back at the history between Du Bois and, Wa and Booker T. Washington, and, and think about what lessons we can learn from that, we need to be able to use trade as well as academic uh, pathways to success in a way that is going to remove a lot of the pressures that come from having to take the only pathway to success that our community has largely globbed onto, which is making white people comfortable enough to work in their spaces. We need trades, we need black plumbers. Right now, right. I could be making six figures as a plumber, but I was told I needed to master uh, these particular skills. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I went to law school, I'd be mm -hmm. a terrible plumber. But the reality is there's economic freedom in the trades. There's economic freedom in vocational pathways. We don't all need to go to college. All of us are not going to go to college. I want my children to go. Yes, I hope they do go. Yes. But I have to recognize that we are living in an environment where we need both and it's not an either or. And we have to be able to recognize that there must be multiple pathways to success for our community, because frankly, not all of these pathways are large enough to hold all of the genius that we have. In well, Larry, but look, that's not the question that W.B. Du Bois had an issue with. His issue with Booker T. Washington, you know this, was he felt that he was very powerful. He had the ear. He had the ability to communicate and say, we can do more. He, felt, he presented an example, that's all we could do. 
All yeah. we could do was work with our hands. That was right. a struggle. And that was the issue that he had in hand. And I don't want to, you know, this interview has more to talk about than Booker T's, something that happened many years ago. But I do want to make a comment on something that you talked about. Your two VP friends at the brain who had never met. They were talking about too many black people. In 1986, I was still working at IBM. Mm. I mean, as an executive. And that was the same statement we will make in 1986. And wow. it's really tragic that 34 years later, in a conversation with you, I'm he's having the same, and he, they're VPs. And so that means that within the corporate structure, the way you walk, it still hasn't changed. Because mm. we would say, you know, jokes like, you know, five black people together, that's a basketball team. You know, huddle up, you know, hey brother, you need to you need to talk and pass at the same time. Don't slow down. Don't go to the bathroom at the same time. All those statements we made in 1986 are being still being made today. But then we see that the white people or the white person feels they are becoming a minority. And so now they're troubled by this. And they're troubled by the words like cancel culture when you talk about removing Confederate flags. And so you're you know, you're interim executive director for law and social justice. When you look at Council culture being tied to the Confederacy, removal of the flags, and we see people walk around here tearing down buildings and putting up Confederate flags and want to keep them on their car. What do you stand and how does that make you feel? Well, you know, I, I believe that people use every opportunity that they can to show you who they really are. And mm -hmm. when that happens, as the great Maya Angelou and others have said, we should <laughs> believe them, right? And we got to remember the Confederate flag uh, really was uh, came back into uh, American popular culture is a response to the civil rights movements, which were fighting mm -hmm. uh, for freedom for black people. They didn't you know, pop up, spring up right after the Civil War. We really see them coming back uh, to assist the growth of groups in the early 1900s, uh, like the Daughters of the Confederacy, like the Ku Klux Klan. We see these Confederate statues going up in, in states that had no connection to the Confederacy, some places that weren't even in existence when there was the Civil mm -hmm. War, uh, mm -hmm. some states that weren't in existence when there was a Civil War. Yet they're putting up these Confederate statues and monuments, not as an ode to history, all history, but as an ode to a particular angle of history um, and as a way of centering. Uh, and, they, you know, we call it the Southern heritage. Yes, Southern heritage, which was centered on the preservation of slavery and the preservation of the social hierarchy, um, which allowed slavery to continue. So we often think about slavery in terms of free labor, which it absolutely was. But slavery yes. was also about the social status that white people held in a superior position over black people in an inferior position. So when it comes to cancel culture, you know, I, I'm a, a believer that cancel culture is really just people recognizing that there are sometimes you have to be accountable for the things that you've said. And there are people yes. out there who agree or disagree. And if they disagree, they are no longer required to pay you attention. Um, and so I think that we should apply that same thing uh, to cancel culture I, uh, or to the Confederacy and, and the Confederate flag, which we are now seeing waving everywhere, including uh, from inside the Capitol building, which is quite a feat considering uh, the rebels themselves were not able to accomplish that. Absolutely. Now, when we, we talk about moving ahead and look at the, um, the inauguration coming up um, January 20th, and you look at so much that has happened in 2020 from a standpoint of HBCUs, I guess, being recognized because of the donations that have come their way. Finally, people feel they are academic institutions and maybe they won't sit around talking about, do we should we send money over there? What are they doing over there? They're educating the best students and corporate leaders in America. That's what they're doing at HBCUs. Right. Now, when I talk about the inauguration and you know what I'm going to is uh, Kamala Harris and her role, you're an African-American female. How do you put all this in perspective, Ms. Daniel? favors. <laughs>
You know, it's interesting because um, I often have conversations with my friends. You know, we, we are now parents, right? Yes. <laughs> so we mm-hmm. all have kids. And we're having these conversations about where we want to see our children go to school. And I've noticed a shift. Whereas at one point, I had a lot of friends who, you know, would say, oh, I would like for my kids to, you know, to at least interview at an HBCU. They should do a tour. But, you know, the the PWI is going to prepare you for real life. Right. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I want them to go to a predominantly white institution um, because that's where they're going to really learn uh, how to get along. They're going to learn how to apply the skills in the real world. And I think that Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, HBCU grad, uh, newly elected Democrat uh, a senator from the state of Georgia, Raphael Warnock, HBCU grad. The Queen of the South, Stacey Abrams, HBCU <laughs> grad. I think these three folk and so many more have completely put to death the lie that an HBCU is not a healthy space for Black children to be educated. And so, you know, I am thrilled about this shift in conversation, this paradigm shift. You know, I, 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 oh my God, I wanted to go to HBCU. So ever since school days in a different world, like what child (laughs) growing up in the eighties did not want to go to an HBCU. I couldn't afford one. And PWIs gave me scholarship money, which is where I went, which is kind of how we see a lot of these things happening. So, you know, you mentioned the donations that these colleges are getting. I am so excited about what this means for expanding opportunities for scholarship for black students. And I think that we're seeing an increase in, in donations to HBCUs from alum and from those of us who were just looking from the outside, looking in, waving, wishing we could have got in, but recognizing the value of the institution. I don't donate to my alma mater, my undergrad. Mm -hmm. I donate to HBCUs. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that we are seeing a real shift in in understanding about the importance of centering ourselves, centering our discourse. And, you know, even our conversation earlier about Du Bois versus Washington, we have, there's so much excellence and we have to have a critical eye towards how we're moving and and informed by history. So we can look back and say, I understand what the elder was doing. The elder was wrong in this particular instance, but here's the nugget I can take out of what he or she was advocating for. And here's how we can plant that seed and water it differently and nurture it differently and produce a different kind of tree. And I think that what we're seeing right now, you know, I I believe firmly in the principle of Sankofa, which is a West African principle that says our, it really speaks to the point of the need for our history being centered and revered because it informs our present and it lays the pathways for us going forward. And the paradigm shift that we are having right now is grounded on a recognition that our past is our present. What we saw happening in Washington, (laughs) D.C. during the certification of the votes, that is America's history front and center in the present. Mm -hmm. And so we right now have a phenomenal opportunity to center ourselves differently. We've got 57 years of integrated American history that we can factor into our analysis. Uh, That was data that our early ancestors and newly freed uh, enslaved persons didn't have. What can we do with this information? What Mm -hmm. can we do with the expectations that we have now? And how do we ensure that we're creating a different set of opportunities for our children? I think that conversation is wide open and I am, I'm so excited to have Senator uh, or Vice President-elect Kamala Harris sort of the symbol of that, because it really does mean that we can now begin thinking in different ways about not only what is power, but how we choose to access it and what pathways we choose to get there. She's an activist. She's a radio host. She's an author. She's an attorney. You know, the great thing about when I, when I look at your platform, first of all, I love you to death. I'm a fan. Okay. Thank you. Your animation, your animated behave tone. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm almost watching you morph into an animated because you're just so 
passion, but then you deliver it with such a informed information. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really usually I talk a lot more, but I'm just enjoying listening to you talk because, let's like say you're spitting fire with information <laughs> attached to it, and I'm not gonna break in with a water hose and drop all that knowledge with some ignorance just because I feel like talking. You are a special young lady. I'm glad. I, I, I hope you consider coming back on the show because I'm trying to create a voice for HBCU. I'm trying to create a voice for black people, a platform where they can come and speak and realize that you are a star. Not so much that, you know, that the Denzel Washington star, you know, you are the new stars, the people who the, 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 the people who are moving information, the people who are moving values. That's why it was really fun to have a really soft debate with you about Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois. I'm going, I know you've not, you don't have that much off, that often because I realized that that's what I go back when I talk about people who set information for you. I didn't find that out until I, about Booker T. Washington until I was later in life because yeah. people were delivering information that they felt was valuable to you. Now, as you, and that's all you learn in African-American studies. Information is, and I will tell you this, I was brought to tears when I realized what I didn't know and what I was denied. Mm. I was denied an opportunity to learn history. Because if you look at history that they teach you in traditional white schools, yep. they're all white schools. So just when you're in under education, it's about they brought us over, they enslaved us, they let us go free. Then they then they drop all they jump past the Jim Crow and all that violence they did when we had an opportunity to see. Then we get up to Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. Then we go to the I Had a Dream speech. Then we do the Civil Rights Voting Act. Then the Martin Luther King assassination. And they stop talking about black people. That's it. They start talking about black people. And that's what we have to do now is talk about black people. Talk about why we have a right. And we start talking about law and social justice. You are for, you're a leader. And I just wanted to bring you on the show and introduce Rashawn McDonald to your world and let you know I'm a fan. And you're a special young lady. Thank you, sir. That means a lot. I, I very much appreciate it. I am honored to sit in this space. You have interviewed and had conversations with some of the most phenomenal people uh, in our community. And so it is it's such an honor for me to be here. And I they cannot thank you enough. I'm very grateful and appreciative. Well, we'll talk soon. Like I said, this world is not going to change. Hopefully it's not by 2020, like 2020 worlds, but we still have a COVID-19 out there. We still have issues on how black people are going to accept forms of vaccination because, again, you know we're going to yes. be last, even though we were overtly affected, or still being overtly affected by COVID-19. But more importantly, January 20th is going to change another lane. We had, you know, President Obama, when he came in, you know, they blocked a lot of things that he wanted to do, and he still gets shade because they feel like he didn't do enough. But that's because people didn't know how Congress worked or how the Senate worked. But that's with right. Joe Biden having a 50-50 in the Senate, we already know, guess who can break that tiebreaker? A black woman. Come that's on it. now. Come on now. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show, my friend. Thank you for having me. God bless and have a great weekend. And you talk. we talk to you soon. My next guest is one of those 100 percenters. His name is Rob Hardy. He is a graduate of FAMU. He directs some of the TV's hottest shows, including Power Book 2, Ghost, Power Books 3, Raising Canaan, that comes out this summer, Prodigal Son, Evil, Shameless, Blackish, Stargirl, How to Get Away with Murder, The Flash, Criminal Minds, among others. Rob Hardy also has executive produced a number of movies that you're familiar with. No Good Deeds, Think Like a Man, That's Me, <laughs> Stump of Yard, plus his fun foundation, identifies, trains, and mentors adults, 
career seekers from diverse backgrounds to pursue lucrative and lasting opportunities in the Georgia film and television workforce. Please welcome. He was on my show before. We got along fantastic. I think we're going to do business in 2021. Please welcome to the show, Money Making Conversation, that is, Rob Hardy. Hey, Rob. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Hey, Rob, a lot to say about you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, happy 2021, man. And listen, I uh, I I appreciate all the shout outs. I do. Yeah, well, you know, the thing about it, Rob, first of all, one of the reasons I brought you on the show, I, I, first of all, the first time I interviewed you was amazing because you're one of those, those solid warriors. You know, you're out there, man, just... Flip the script. You do. You're not just a minority or a black director. Your your resume includes a diverse platform of sci-fi, comedy, uh, drama. How do you walk in all those different shoes? You know, it's uh, uh, you know, when I'm working, it's all about the story, and I love different types of stuff. You know what I'm saying? So whether it is sci-fi or teen dramas or drug dealers or relationships <laughs> or doctors. I think mm -hmm. that at the end of the day, it's all about a human story and trying to figure out what that is. And then you get a chance to play in like the different worlds. So today we're in space, you know, tomorrow we're in the South Bronx. So, you know, that and everything in between, I'm, I'm just, I'm here for that. And it's amazing because uh, I wanted to bring on the show because in 2020, you know, it's an amazing year, COVID hit, civil unrest, but one jewel started shining in 2021. That's HBCUs. And yeah. you're an HBCU alum of the infamous Fam Mute. <laughs> Absolutely, man. The highest of seven hills located in sunny Tallahassee, Florida. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm a family rattler. And uh, and that school has been everything to me. And, and it basically laid the foundation for me and a bunch of other people from our era to really come in uh, and, and try to do our thing. So I, so I love Fam. Okay, cool. So where are you originally from and how did you pick FAMU to, to pursue your higher education? Uh, I grew up in uh, Philadelphia, Philly, PA, and mm -hmm. um, my mom wound up taking a job in Florida. And she said, hey, you know, you should apply to uh, uh, an in-state school so we could afford it. Right. And so um, I wound up getting to FAMU that way. Um, and, you know, had a degree and in, in, got a degree in engineering and it was probably like the best one of the best experiences ever because it was so many you know different types of people from all over the world that looked just like me um right. that were going to school but they also had like a hustle and a passion and it was just the vibe and the energy you know being at our school at that time that just made you want to go and make moves and we felt like, you know, if anybody in the world was going to do it, it was going to be the fam you and that was going to do it. And that was kind of like the energy uh, that that school gave us. Well, you're really interesting, uh, Rob. I didn't go to a HBCU. I graduated from University of Houston in Houston, Texas. Texas Southern was right down the street. Further down the street was Prairie View. The next state was Southern, Grambling. But fam you, man, has always had that mystique, you know, that, uh, put us in your shoes because I, I really need to know I'm from the outside and I get excited when I say fam you why because you know fam you was a unique place or is a unique place because it's always been the fam you swag the fam you hustle and you know we always kind of felt like when you go to fam yeah you got this major whatever that is 
But then what's your hustle? What's your passion? Like, what do you really want to do? And everybody has some version of that. Right. And we were cool. So we could go, we could we could study, we could party, we could hang out and do everything in between. But there was always this kind of undercurrent of I want to do something. I want to change the world. I want to make something happen. And we were always doing that at school. And, you know, so many of my friends, when I look out, they're out there making it happen. And also, too, because. You know, we were a state school, so it wasn't like, mm-hmm. you know, some of the other HBCUs that were kind of like, you know, anointed or the crown jewels or whatever. FAMU, we were we were always, you know, solid, uh, you know, and always well respected. Right. But we always felt like we were outsiders kind of. And we loved that. And so because mm-hmm. of that, it gave us a different kind of edge. So when we broke into the industry, we took that FAMU <laughs> attitude with us to say, hey, we Rattlers, we here. And we're going to bring some other rattlers with us. And right. so we were like, you know, you, you, your cool cousins that come around and make the party live. That's that's kind of, you know, how we were and how we still are. Well, you know, the funny part about this, Rob, the more you talk, man, the more animated you become, your smile get bigger and you get to bouncing, you know, like a boxer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, hey, listen, it's just something in you. The more you talk about it, you just feel like, that. So I just... um. You know, anytime I, I get a chance to show off my school, you know, I, I always, always got to do that. Well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about it, I know how college played a role in my life. I always tell people what I'm doing now is what I did when I was in college. You know, uh, production, the live events, all those things were nurtured in college. And then in college, like so your degree is in engineering, but now you're a director, entertainment, and you met some met Will Packer there. And he was his degree is not in entertainment related field either. So how did that relationship come about and led to stump the yard? So uh, Will and I uh, met at a, at a pre-college engineering program called ECI mm-hmm. at FAMU. And so it was like right before our freshman year, they bring in all these engineering students that are going to be right. going to the school. And, you know, I was a guy that thought I was going to another school, but didn't get the money. He thought he was going to another school, but didn't get the money. We wound up at FAMU and we became fast friends. And what came out over our hanging out over that summer was that I wanted to be the filmmaker. And I was a big Spike Lee and John Singleton (laughs) and Robert Townsend fan. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to be a a businessman and have his own business. Mm -hmm. So just as we were hanging out and being friends, and then we became Lion Brothers. Um, We're both alphas. then when I wound up seeing Menace of Society, uh, you know, because that was the big movie in theaters, a, a few friends of mine were like, well, hey, since you did a small movie in high school, you ought to do something here. And then that gave Will and I a chance to do a project together at FAM. And that project was called Chocolate City, um, you know, and it was it was a big deal for us because we were a historically black college with no film mm-hmm. program. And so it kind of became our thing. And when we, you know, put it out there and hustled it into a video deal, 10 years later, after we shot that movie, relatively, we got a chance to shoot Stomp the Yard um, in Atlanta at Morris Brown and a little bit over at Morehouse in Clark, Atlanta. And it was just so crazy, like 10 years of us kind of being out there on the grind to be doing an HBCU movie that Sony was paying for and it was like Chris Brown's first movie. It was the yes. movie that really put Columbus short on the map, even though he mm-hmm. was a, a great actor. And just to be able to do that 
and have so many of our friends behind the scenes and being able to celebrate our culture. And then, you know, it was number one, two weeks in a row. It was just a real, you know, special moment. And it was like our, you know, tipping the hats to our schools. You know, it was really interesting because uh, I, I told Will this story. The first time I told you this story because I was um, executive producer, co-creator of the Steve Harvey Morning Show. We was in New York. And when they came out, you know, I was telling Steve, this Stomp the Yard movie, man, it's, it's, it's some brothers. And I didn't know you guys at the time. I said, we got to keep this movie number one, man. And, and it's really interesting that the love I had for you guys and what you were doing, that years later you come back into our lives and do Think Like a Man. The author's book, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. And so that's really amazing, man. It's about when you when you love something and you see something special. And you guys were doing something special. And you're still doing special things today. But again, I always tell people, it's not always about the money. It's about the opportunity and the relationship. And that's really a testament to your career. Correct, Rob? Well, listen, well, first of all, we appreciate and I personally appreciate, <laughs> you know, uh, the shout out and the love, you know, that y'all gave us to help push that movie that means a lot you know mm -hmm. um and it's funny how those things come back around because we really loved that book and you know mm -hmm. I, I definitely got to give a shout out to my wife because she was the first one to come talking to <laughs> me about that book like hey everybody's talking about this and we love the book and you got to turn this into a movie and so on and so forth and mm -hmm. and i'm glad that over time that that that, that worked out but you're absolutely right I think a lot of times, you know, when we do things for the love, when we do things with the right spirit, the money comes. You know what I'm saying? And it just feels different. And whether you're doing something just for money or doing something because you love it, the grind and the work is going to be hard regardless. So you might as well grind and work hard for something that you love. So then that when that payoff happens, it's going to feel a lot different than if you're just doing something for a check. You know, you know, and, and, and you know, the interesting thing about it, you've always had a, 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 a HBCU flavor in your production, like the quad that you did at BET <laughs> with my girl, Felicia Henderson, I call yeah. her my baby sister. And, uh, you know, when I when I when I look at what you're doing in sports with All-American, you know, again, Rob, your gifts, man, so diverse. How that's a director. You know, people just want to do, some people are just a sitcom director. Some people just a sci-fi or big explosions, dramas. How are you able to manipulate that level of creative creativity in your mind? Um, you know, uh, because I love, I love a lot of different types of things, you know, right. uh, and, you know, I would do the sci-fi stuff with my dad when I was little and we would watch the Star Wars and Star Treks. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I got more into, you know, uh, stuff that looked like my neighborhood as, as right. we got older, <laughs> you know, um, and just and just being able to try to relate and make and make the characters relatable. You know what I'm saying? And I kind of mm -hmm. feel like, you know, I want us to be able to do stuff that we go and we go to the big movies and see and say, well, shoot, right. why can't we do the sci-fi and tell this story, but also make it authentic to our people. So that way it's not like the character or the black character is just there to be supportive or just there to say, Hey man, let me give, let me big you up. But to be able to say, I have, you know, dreams and aspirations. I'm, I'm heroic. Also, I have a love life too. So right. I want to be able to try to help, you know, tell those stories too. Related, my degree is in mathematics and my minor is sociology. So I'm not doing nothing tied to my degree. I've done sitcoms as a writer, produced them, 
created them, reality shows, but I never directed anything, Rob. What does a director do and how do how, how can you become a director? So um as a as a sports fan, I relate it mm. like this. A director is like the coach of a team. You design the plays and then put your actors in the best position to execute and win or do a good project. That's what a director does. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like the head coach of the team and the producer, the general manager, the GM, you know, they'll hire me or they'll hire the coach. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I love that because it gives me the opportunity to, you know, interact with people and talk to them and try try to fig, try to get to the truth of the situation so they can so it can feel as real to them and as right. relatable as possible to them. So that way the audience feels something. Right. Because if you just watch a movie or watch a TV show and you don't feel anything, then we just wasted your time. But even if you feel mad, sad, laugh, whatever it is, you feel something, then, you know, it was worth the time that you gave us, you know, to to watch our show. Well, you know, this is amazing. Just watching your talents and the, the, the break. So let me slow it down, man. I saw the finale of Power Book 2 Ghost. I'm going to tell you something, man. I didn't see this coming in this series. I didn't see that I would be spending my Sunday nights watching Power. I just didn't see it because when it came out, I heard the storyline. Drug dealer, club owner, you know, I went 50 cents. I go, I ain't watching that. I ain't watching that. I ain't watching it. Sound like a bad rap video that I don't want to watch. But what makes, what made it? Because I want to go back to when the beginning, because you were there at the beginning. And you've been there through the whole process. I apologize when I say that. And because you did the finale of Power Book to Ghost. What makes that what makes that series work? So, you know, I think what makes the, the power series work is on a fundamental level, it's really relatable. So in the original power series, you had a guy that grew up a certain way, ghost. Mm -hmm. And he did what he had to do, given his options. So he was a drug dealer and he had his mm -hmm. best friend that was along with him. And then he gets to a place to where he wants to make a change in his life and do something different, going right. to clubs. But he's got his, you know, his wife and his best friend slash business partner that don't want him to change. Right. And then he meets this other woman who to him represents the change that he can be. And that's the fundamental of it all is trying to figure out how do I transition into who I want to be when the people around me are saying, all you can be is this. And mm -hmm. I think there's something like that from a from a humanity standpoint, that's really relatable as we're at different parts, you know, positions in our lives where maybe you want to do something different than your family's accustomed to you doing, or your friends are accustomed to you doing, and you want to transition. And here's this guy. And it leads to one bad decision after another bad decision. And I think we get caught up in that. And that's the foundation of that is what makes power amazing. And then it's in the world of clubs and drug dealers and stuff and toys and murder, which makes it cool. And so this is like the dare, you know, this, the ghost series is like part two of that. So mm -hmm. it was created by Courtney Kemp uh, and 50 Cent and just how they, you know, interwove the stories has been pretty amazing. Um, and they're really smart people. Um, so being a part of that's been cool. And it's been stuff that just, you know, as a 40 something year old guy, I can relate to on a lot of different levels. And so many other people. Here's the thing about this series. 
you know, the Fast and Furious series works because it's about family. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And then I equate that same thing with the Power series. He just wants to be a good dad, but so many elements stop him. His lifestyle stops him. His personal won't stop him. And that's yeah. really what drives him the most. You know, he wants to be a good husband, but then again, he meets the love of his life. He wants to be a good father, but then the lifestyle he lives, you know, that's not going to end good. You can't parent that life, you know, because you're going to walk your son right into that danger zone. But I did not see that young man who plays his son become the star that he is today. He's incredible, man. Yeah, he really is. Uh, uh, Michael Rainey Jr., shout out to him. I've just watched his evolution and growth as an actor. Wow. You know, when I, cause I, I came on and started working on the original Power show uh, season two. And just his role was a lot smaller as far as the amount of stuff he had to do. And it's grown and just working on the ghost finale, um, just watching his range just change as an actor, you know, and how much more confidence that he has um, has been pretty amazing uh, to watch. And it's cool because it's like, you know, for him as a character, you know, he's doing the best that he can. But now, you know, you're trying to lead, you know, your father wants to keep you out of, out of, that, out of that business, but that's a part of his life and the people that he's, you know, around, you know, are killers and drug right. dealers. So some of that stuff rubs off on him. So it's kind of, you know, uh, interesting that you work your whole life to keep your kids from certain things, but because of how you do things, sometimes, sometimes that stuff comes back. And I think that that it makes it, uh, that, that makes for good TV. If you have not seen the finale, check out the finale. But here's the thing about, by Michael's character, because like I said, it was small. He was Weasley. But the episode where his sister was murdered, yeah, I think to me was a turning point for his character. Because for me as a person, I became engaged. I hated him, you know. I did. I was disappointed in him, but I couldn't. I, I hate too strong. I was disappointed because he was young. You can't hate a young person because you make mistakes when you're young. And that point on his character development, he exploded, man. When we look at. Who's our next Denzel? Who's our next Samuel? Man, he's on the radar to be that dude. He's on the radar. You know, you know, it, it, it's so interesting hearing you say that because I totally agree. I think that everything is fun in games until somebody gets seriously hurt or mm -hmm. killed mm -hmm. or gets mm -hmm. locked up for a long time for something that we did. Now it's real. So I think mm -hmm. that all the misfit like stuff that he was doing the rebellious type stuff that he was doing as a, as a kid rebelling against his parents um changed when his sister died especially knowing that that bullet should have been for him made yes. him a different person because now you, you you've crossed an invisible line and you can never come back the only next logical step for him was to physically go and you know you know get retribution, kill the guy that, that shot his sister. And once that mm -hmm. line was crossed, it was, it, you can't go back. You know, he opened Pandora's box. And so I think that there's like everything else as a result of that has been him growing into that new person. So well, you know, um, I, makes, I won't give away the makes him a great character. But the opening, the pilot of power, ghost character, looking good, innocent looking in the sense that he looked like he could be running a Fortune 500 company. And he kills somebody in that pilot, set the tone for the evolution of his son in the in the series finale. And, yep. you know, he says some things and some phrases in there that really signifies 
that I can't wait to, to I can't wait to the next episode. You know, that's a great story when you when you when you're sitting up there going, hey man, it's over with me. I didn't see another episode. And that's what you did last night in the finale, man. The finale that you that aired on Sunday night was amazing, man. Congratulations, man. I appreciate that. I'm really glad that you uh that you dug it. And yeah, you're right. I, I agree. Listen, uh, the, the 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 pilot to power. I thought was uh, was really amazing to like bring you into that world and and it's crazy yeah ghost we we met ghost there and that's where he left us yes you know in that same club it's amazing now let's talk about some other things outside of power you know the Hardy your rainforest entertainment just partnered with Lionsgate TV for a first look production year what exactly is that so what it is is that we have a uh, production deal with Lionsgate, uh, end of episodes specifically. So end of episode is the company, it's Courtney Kemp's uh, company, and she's the creator of Power. So that means that we're uh, partnering with her to develop content. And so first look means that my company, uh, Rainforest Entertainment, and I have a, a, a partner in my company from FAMU, Mitzi Miller, um, who uh, used to be editor-in-chief over at uh, Ebony J. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so... We'll have projects that we develop. And then once we take that to end of episode Lionsgate, if they want to partner with us on it, then we'll be business partners and we'll package it and try to sell the project. If not, then we're free and clear to take it anywhere that we want and get it set up. So, um, you know, it's a big deal for us as a company. Um, and so we're real excited about 2021. You know, the really interesting thing about my show, Money Making Conversations, is that and, and you have the same personality, Rob. You know, you just help people be helping. And But in a way, we've learned that that's been mentorship. That means that not afraid of competition. You know, I always tell people, if I give you an idea and you make a million dollars, I'm happy. Because that was an idea that obviously had no value to me. I couldn't do anything with it. And so you've established that with your foundation. You and your wife have established the foundation to train, mentor, and give people careers in this. And it is a lucrative film and TV business in Georgia. Tell us about that foundation. So um, we have a company called, or a foundation called um, the Rob and Sean Hardy Amazing Stories Foundation. So my, mm -hmm. my wife and I uh, created the foundation and the whole purpose of it is to train people from our communities in the Atlanta metro area um, how to get, you know, production jobs uh, on sets for TV right. and movies. But this is these, these are what we call below the line positions. So it's not mm -hmm. stuff like directors, writers, producers, but it's everything from transportation to camera to special effects, hair, makeup. Um, so a young lady, uh, Nina Packer, another family one, uh, runs the <laughs> foundation. And um, we partner with the city of East Point, um, whose mayor, Dina Ingram, is another family one. Uh, you know, you see like the trend here. And uh, we did uh, two, we've done two seasons of it. So we basically gone out, found people, trained them, put them on sets. Um, and a bunch of those people have gotten full-time jobs working on TV and movie sets. So we have people right now on shows like Black Lightning and Dynasty, um, you know, and shows like that. Um, so it's a really big deal because especially living in Atlanta, a lot of producers would come here and you go on the sets and they wouldn't have a whole lot of diversity behind the mm -hmm. scenes. It wouldn't be a whole lot of people that look like us. And they mm -hmm. kept saying, well, we can't find the people. There's no trained people. So my mm -hmm. thought was, okay, well then we'll create a pipeline. 
we'll create an avenue to where my cousin, your cousin that lives in our city can get some training and they can drive a truck. They can cook some food. They can carry some cable. They can do whatever. And then with that, they can get a career with a pension, uh, with some health insurance. And then they can show other people in our communities that this industry, this multi-billion dollar industry is for us too. Wow. Well, you know, I, 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 first of all, you know, the only thing wrong with this interview, man, because I'm a member of Omega Sci-Fi, and you keep repeating <laughs> the word alpha. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, I got respect for the alpha, but you can't be saying that too many times on my show. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, look, I'm going to tell you, look, my dad, my dad uh, uh, was an Omega, you know what I'm saying? And I used Whoa. to always tell him, I said, I said, listen, things get better with time. So, you know, <laughs> you know, you train me up, gave me all your gifts so that way I could, I could take this thing to greater heights. And that's what I did. You know what I'm saying? So, hey, hey I love it. I hey, love it. Here we are. <laughs> so I, did a little, I did a little background check, but bro, man, first of all, first time we met, man, we was going to connect. The pandemic blew us everything. But this year, man, you know what I talked about before this call? Uh, I, brother, you, 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 you're amazing. And uh, we're going to do business in 2021, and uh, and carry some of these visions and these these skill sets that you have to the next level. And uh, I bought a building in Atlanta, so I want to invite you by your wife by, so we can sit down and talk. Because I got some local productions I'm going to be doing that I'd like to be able to bring some of your some of the individuals over here and work them and matriculate them into our programs that we're trying to do. Because again, if you don't have a resume. In the business, you don't have an opportunity. And that's all you about. That's all I'm about. Thanks for coming on Money Making Conversations. I appreciate you having me, man. As always, man, it's good to see you. Keep <laughs> representing and doing your things in a big way. <laughs> good. We'll be right back with more from Rashawn McDonald and Money Making Conversations. Don't touch that dial. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald, the host of Money Making Conversations. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award is a celebration of black men who are making a difference in our community by empowering others to reach their life goals. From civic leaders, businessmen, activists, celebrities, and everyday dads, the Cafe Mocha Swag Award winner this week is Cedric the Entertainer. Cedric was taught by his mother to go forth and do great things and therefore created the Cedric the Entertainer Charitable Foundation to help young people achieve their dreams. I've been doing a lot of uh, philanthropic work. We got a great women's health facility that I got named after my mom at a great hospital where we do a lot of women's health work. Uh, we've been doing it the last five years. And, uh, you know, a lot of lot of scholarships, a lot of kids to college. So for the city to recognize me for those kind of works and name a street after me uh, was just big, man. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award represents men that have strength, their vision is assertive, and they are genuine in their spirit. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest understands committed effort. That's what she does. She publicizes everybody's committed effort. And for that purpose, I'm bringing her on the show because she truly is a person who talks about everybody, but very little information about her is known. My next guest is Alonda Thomas. She serves as the Director of Public Relations at Howard University. She was recently named the 2020 Top Women in PR by PR News. She has worked at three historically black colleges and universities, including her alma mater, FAMU, and her current role at Howard University. Alanda has led public relations strategy for a number of clients, including TV One, that's where I met her, ABC Network, CNN, Walt Disney Studios, and Fox Searchlight. 
first Fox Searchlight, excuse me. She's listed as one of the top 25 African-American PR millennials to watch in the Huffington Post. Please welcome the money-making conversation. I've said a lot of nice things about her, Miss Alonda Thomas. Thank you, Rashawn. I appreciate you having me on the show. Well, did I get enough information out about you? Did I set it up right for you? <laughs> yeah, it was like a walk down memory lane listening to all of those accolades. But well, I enjoyed lane, every minute of it. Memory lane is like when it's way in the past. These accolades, the accolades uh, that uh, I'm talking about 2020, 2019, meaning did you build a momentum in your career and it's only going to get bigger? Talk about... Let's talk about, first of all, your HBCU experience, because in 2020, we all know that for some reason it came to the forefront. A lot of large uh, donations were made to HBCU schools. It was like white America discovered it for the very first time. The HBCUs exist. And you and I both know the contributions that HBCU make to the academic, to the STEM community, to the medical community, legal and Political community is tremendous. So talk about your influence, the influence HBCUs had on you academically and why you went there. Yes, well, I got my uh, career or my education started at Florida A&M University, which is mm -hmm. where I had my first taste of getting into public relations. I was fortunate enough to be a student intern working in the Office of Communications there and met uh, Sharon Saunders, who really became a mentor for me and helped mm -hmm. me learn the craft while I was studying the craft in school. Um, she is the person who also helped me get my first job out of school. I became a communication specialist under her working at North Carolina Central University and got mm -hmm. to spend uh, almost three years uh, creating and writing every uh, press release that came out of that institution. Um, and it really just solidified for me the importance of being able to tell our own stories properly and appropriately mm -hmm. to the media in order to use their platforms to leverage the success of an institution, to tell our stories, to make sure that the experts that are coming out of that institution doing research are known to the, to the greater public. Um, it helps to promote the uh, interest of students coming into that institution. And mm -hmm. so even though I still had an interest in getting into entertainment PR, when I was mm -hmm. asked years later by Ms. Saunders to go back um, and work for her again, but this time at Florida A&M University, mm -hmm. um, it was definitely something that I just couldn't say no to. And then, of course, when the opportunity came up years later to leave TV One and go to work at Howard University, again, it was something that I, I definitely didn't mind doing because I feel so passionately and strongly about making sure that our HBCUs, our, our precious treasures, have an opportunity to get our message out to the greater world. Why FAMU for you? Why, why, there's a lot of schools you could have went to, but why FAMU? Um, FAMU was a family school. My father had gone to both Bethune-Cookman and Florida A&M University, mm -hmm. and uh, I hadn't spent as much time at Florida A&M, so it was still mysterious to me. So when the opportunity to go to one or the other came up, I said, I, I definitely want to go to FAMU. It's a little farther away from my hometown <laughs> in Miami, Florida. Um, and I just was ready for that opportunity to branch out on my own and have my own new experiences as a young adult. And it definitely it did not disappoint um, some of the cultural experiences that I got to have there, attending the convocations and hearing from renowned speakers coming to campus. Um, those are some of the things that uh, you experience at HBCUs that really help to shape and frame who you are as a person, understanding your identity and your background and and the uh, significance of our culture and our legacy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just carried with me throughout my life and the different places that I've been able to work. And 
being at Howard University now, um, that continues, uh, helping to make sure that students understand uh, the great breadth of things that we accomplish at these institutions is very important to me. And so I feel it's much of an honor to be able to do that every day, helping mm -hmm. to tell our stories and if possible, getting them onto national outlets so that um, everyone, whether they're uh, interested in HBCUs or thinking about right. places where they can donate their money, where it's going to make a significant difference, um, is very important. You know, the, being I've been in entertainment, so PR, PR agencies have always been a mainstay of my relationship with entertainment. <laughs> I run into a lot of people young people, people who have already been established, talking about the roles of the PR company or the PR person. You are Director of Public Relations currently at Howard University. Can you help some of my listeners who are interested in going into the field of public relations? How does that, how does it work and how can one start establishing their, their feet in the business? Yeah, well, I would certainly recommend um, training, um, getting that college education at a journalism school that specializes in public mm -hmm. relations like Florida A&M did, or the mm -hmm. communication school at Howard University, which is named mm -hmm. after Kathy Hughes, one of the legendary women um, in the broadcast industry, is important um, because you'll get the tools there to learn how to write press releases, articles, to learn how to pitch media, to look at the news in a different way, to figure out, you know, why are they speaking to that particular person today? Right. Did that just happen by happenstance or did somebody actually bring this person and this message to their attention? And that's what a PR person does behind the scenes is help get those stories, uh, whether it's various experts in the world of vaccines right now, as everybody is being um, mm -hmm. very conscious about whether or not they should be taking that. Um, those are the things that a publicist can do to make sure that the right influencers are connected with the right media outlets in order to be able to tell a positive story. Because you, you said something in your statement about the story, telling the right story, telling there's so many stories that are, that have, that's with mass media, you have Fox story, Fox News story, you have the CNN story, you have the BBC story, you have the MSNBC story, and all of them seem to be leaning on a particular audience that they're trying to reach. As in your case, I'm assuming you're trying to reach the African-American audience or you're just trying to reach a diverse audience when you do public relations for Howard University. Well, I look at it as, as a variety of stakeholders that we have at the institution. First and foremost, our current and existing students um, being able to make sure that we're continuing to communicate with them throughout their matriculation because they too need to be aware of all of the great things that are happening at the institution. Prospective students, um, helping them to see profiles on our students who are doing really well, who are achieving Wrangell mm -hmm. um, fellowship opportunities um, is important for us to get out there so that they can envision themselves in those roles. And then when you look at the different schools and colleges, uh, each of those have stories that they wanna tell. Um, we are one of the only one of four HBCUs that has a medical college. And so um, it's important for us to be able to um, emphasize the importance of black doctors. There's certainly um, not enough of them. And when you think of the fact that the majority of black doctors are coming out of four institutions across the world, it just demonstrates for you how important the role we play um, in that field and in that industry. Right. And uh, recently we were able to come on the um radar of a Mike Bloomberg 
who was mm-hmm. able to donate to our institution. So he's going to be helping those students um, financially be able to get through college, which is extremely important. Well, also internship programs and potential hiring opportunities is really what we're trying to communicate when we're talking about going to college, getting a degree. And it's such a difficult field. PR is a, it's like all fields, great opportunity for very difficult. I'll ask you this question. It is a, is PR a business for the young or the experienced? Well, one of the things that drew me to the field is um, I felt that I was a strong writer and a a friend of mine suggested that I try a public relations course. I actually started off school um, looking at going into broadcast journalism, Mm -hmm. Um, but I took a PR 101 course Mm -hmm. and was hooked from there because I found it interesting to be able to take the written word, put together an article that could easily be dropped into the a weekly newspaper if necessary, um, but using that to kind of form an opinion for people so that a journalist could take a look at that and say, you know, this is something that I definitely want to learn more about. I want to um, talk to the experts that are right. referenced in this press release um, and maybe do my own stories about it. And with public relations, you can do it in just about every industry that there is. So I felt like that was another way to broaden my horizons that I wouldn't be limited to one particular lane. Um, first, my my first internship in public relations was at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, mm-hmm. Florida. Um, mm-hmm. I told you about interning at the university in their office. Um, I do entertainment PR. I've done higher education PR. And at a university with all of the different schools and colleges that we represent, I end up doing PR services for all of those um, individual areas as well. So I think it's definitely still a industry that's on the rise. um, And I think students would be well suited to think about that Mm -hmm. as they look at, you know, their place um, in the industry that they want to go into. Uh, Now, your clients have included TV One, ABC Network, uh, CNN, Walt Disney Studios, Fox Searchlight. Now, you and I met at TV One. When we were we met before that, but we were working on a particular show that attorney uh, Benjamin Crump and I was doing called Evidence of Innocence. Uh, and and then and then we were going back, we were email, we we LinkedIn account message, and all of a sudden you said, Rashawn, I'm headed to Howard. What opportunities did Howard present to you that you were not getting at TV One? And not saying anything was negative TV One. But Howard is one quote unquote is kind of considered the Harvard of HBCUs. What made that transition one that you wanted to pursue, leaving TV one to go to Howard? Well, I'll tell you, it was definitely a difficult decision because working at a television network had been yes. a dream of mine. It was on my um, you know, uh board to be something that I try to accomplish in my life. And so when it finally happened and the opportunity <laughs> presented itself to be at a television network and I didn't have to go all the way back to Los Angeles in order to accomplish it, it, it's, it was a definitely a dream come true. And I enjoyed every minute of working on the television shows and the films that I got to work on, including yours and Unsung. Um, <laughs> you know, it's definitely an exciting place to be. So when the opportunity presented itself to come to Howard, um, for me, it was the right move to continue to matriculate in my career as a professional. Um, I would be moving from PR manager back to a director position. Um, I would have a larger team that I was going to be able 
to supervise. And like you said, it was Howard. So I was like, well, if it's not going to be Florida A&M University, <laughs> Howard is definitely not too shabby of a place to go. Um, and I've enjoyed every minute of it because I look at universities kind of like small cities. Mm-hmm. Anything that could go up or down in a city can happen on a university campus. So you really get an opportunity to stretch yourself by working in this environment. The opportunities to be creative and think outside of the box in the Mm -hmm. way that we promote things are endless. And even something as simple as being able to promote homecoming at a Howard University, which you already know has a lot of attention and interest. um, Mm -hmm. There are ways to make sure that we're using that opportunity with thousands of alumni coming from across the country to be able to tell the messaging that we want to share. And so in 2019, we wanted to make sure that we got out the message about our Howard Forward strategic plan and ensuring people that we were constantly working on moving the university forward. And we were able to get that work um, to receive some award recognition um, because of the campaign that we put together. So I like being able to challenge myself Mm -hmm. um, to do bigger and better things, and Howard has not disappointed. Well, I, I believe me, Howard is a, a significant. I grew up in Houston, Texas, so Texas Southern University, uh, Third Ward. I graduated from University of Houston. Used to walk down to Third to Texas Southern all the time in Third Ward. Prairie View and it was right down the street. So next state was Southern and Grambling. So I've always had an, an HBCU affluence. Uh, influence around my whole life. But why in 2020, for some reason, did HBCUs suddenly become uh, 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 a fan favorite for endowments Mm -hmm. by uh, white corporations? Can you, from a PR standpoint, can you explain to me why that happened in 2020? Well, I think the um, world in the U.S. in general is going through a, a reckoning right now with all of the social injustice that we're seeing, um, racial uh, conversations that need to be had. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are looking for solutions and mm-hmm. they realize that our HBCUs are a fitting group of leaders that need to be at the table for that. So I believe that uh, we have a lot of philanthropists who are looking for the leadership that's going to be able to help guide us and HBCUs being that we are already training so many of uh, the nation's next black leaders Mm -hmm. is a a great place to invest those dollars so that we can continue to make sure that African-Americans can achieve a degree and go on to be successful in a variety of careers, um, as well as we need to be um, part of the solution to help um, this nation heal. Um, That's what I've been working on with uh, the Office of University Communications team to find different ways that we can um, take someone like uh, President Frederick and uh, allow him to use his expertise in areas that are of importance um, in this nation. So we've had him be able to talk on national television about the health crisis uh, with the coronavirus and what we're doing at our HBCUs to continue to make our students safe. He's been able to um, encourage people to participate in the vaccination process through Mm -hmm. a PSA that we put together. And as people are seeing this on television, I do believe that they want to do something to help support the work that is being done. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that we've set up different um, sites for vaccine tests, um, coronavirus testing to take place 
um, and resources need to be pulled together to make something like that happen. So we appreciate when a Bank of America steps up with a million dollar grant in order to support that testing or um, when a Thermo Fisher reaches out and says, we know that testing for your students on campus is going to be very expensive. And so we want to underwrite mm -hmm. that so that you guys don't have to take that expense yourself. And then a Gates Foundation jumps in and wants to support Thermo Fisher so that, right. again, that money is not something that's coming out of the university's bottom line. Because in today's day and age, we are still um, reaching out to a lot of students who are first generation in their families to go to college. Um, it's very expensive and there's still students who really can't afford an opportunity to go to college. And HBCUs have been standing in that gap to help make those financial ends meet um, in order to continue to train this uh, very necessary, important generation of um, leaders who are gonna be coming out of these HBCUs. So we really applaud those who are stepping up to the table to do their part in any way possible, whether that's financially or through their resources. Well, with that being said, you know, you are a PR person at Howard University. You know, we noticed that this year, unfortunately, 2020, uh, Chadwick Boseman passed away. That's on a overall campus global perspective the brand, the relationships that he's brought. He's not the only famous person from an entertainment perspective that has come from Howard University. Then on the sports side, a five-star basketball recruit enrolled into Howard University. Explain to me how you, as the PR director of Howard University, handled both situations, one from a charismatic, global talent who will passed away suddenly. Every, I, I think um, the world was shocked when he passed away. And then the unbelievable statement that a five-star recruit in basketball was going to enroll at Howard University. Well, Chadwick Bozeman is a, has, was a great friend to the university <clears throat> in the years leading up to his unfortunate death. Um, we were blessed to have him come and serve as our commencement speaker in 2018. Mm -hmm. And that was part of Dr. Frederick's uh, strategic plan to be able to let our students hear from people who had been just where they had been, um, inviting alumni to come back and, and tell their stories so that we can hear from them, you know, give them their roses while they're here in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, so we were so appreciative of the fact that we had had that time with Chadwick on campus um, prior to his passing away. Um, we were not aware that he had mm -hmm. been sick at that time, which we mm -hmm. later found out through the news reports. And um, that day when the news broke, you know, that was definitely a all hands on board. Let's jump together and make sure that we celebrate and recognize him in the way that was fitting. So um, we immediately put out um, a, um, a notice to uh, social media to let them know that our condolences were with the family. Um, mm -hmm. A larger note to campus was distributed um, talking about the significance of his career, his charisma, um, what he brought to the, the world um, right. through the different roles that he played and how he will truly always be remembered. Um, and still to this day, we get a lot of requests for copies of that commencement speech to be included in various shows. So we continue to um, monitor and manage those requests as they come in. With a student like McCor Maker, um, you know, those are the kinds of moments that universities <laughs> hope will happen based off of all of the work that's currently being done with the young people that we have. And so to have someone at 
his love will be interested in coming to um, a Howard University, even though he had his pick of the choice of places where he could have gone to school to play, um, is definitely um, helping us to, again, remind people of everything that we have to offer at a Howard University beyond just the sports, but the academics that clearly he was thinking about, the legacy that comes out of here um, obviously was very important to him. And we want all student athletes to consider coming to HBCUs because we do definitely have um, the know-how and the talent and the educators to help them get to where they want to be in life outside of sport. So uh, from an athletic standpoint, you know, HBCUs have always been recognized as delivering on the sports, delivering on the entertainment from the halftime bands. Now, from an academic standpoint, I've always felt that HBCUs have not been given their just due. And that's what angers me. And it angers me because I feel that, you know, predominantly white institutions are, are basically taking credit for some of the academic successes that are happening with HBCU graduates. So, I can't say it's been debunked. What do you, in the landscape of HBCUs, what can we do? What can we do to promote the value, the success stories of HBCUs? So finally it's recognized and it's not like a, a surprise. Well, I have to commend a place like Howard University and in investing in the resources that it needs to build the right team to help mm -hmm. tell that story. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because resources are thin, um, Investing in your communications team is just not something that happens um, at the rate that it needs to at all of our HBCUs. So this does definitely goes back to funding. You know, of mm -hmm. course, you think of donations to a university and obviously the first and most important place to do that is into scholarships. But right. I would definitely implore your audience to think about making sure that they do donations that are unrestricted so that the university has options to be able mm. to use that those resources in other ways that will still continue to support the work that they are doing. Um, Howard University has invested in its Office of University Communications and, and will continue to do more as the dollars become available. Um, but at a lot of places, you might find that the PR team is a one or a two person shop. And so right. it makes it really difficult to do a whole lot with a small team like that versus I'm blessed to um, when we're fully um, booked have uh, four senior communication specialists that work under me so that we can divide people up to different schools and colleges and work on helping to spend time diving into what's the stories being told here, what research is being told here, what students are having significant internship opportunities that we might want to profile to let other students know this is an opportunity for you when you become a student here. Um, and so Again, just that's another something for people to consider is uh, beyond just investing for the scholarship opportunities at your HBCUs um, to think about those other places where unrestricted funds would be um, definitely um, appreciated. And mm -hmm. even if you didn't go to an HBCU, um, it doesn't mean that you can't um, invest your dollars there because we all mm -hmm. know that it's going to benefit the larger community. Well, here's the fun part about my conversation, because when I look at the uh, HBCUs and which we turn into 2021, you look at what happened in Georgia with Stacey Abrams, HBCU graduate, Reverend uh, Raphael Warnack, 
HBCU graduate. And then we have to talk about <clears throat> the ultimate uh, HBCU graduate about to uh, make history as the vice president-elect uh, Kamala Harris, who's also a member of the uh, sorority AKAs. Talk about the impact of her being the vice president of the United States, being a graduate of HBCU, being a graduate of Howard University, and a proud graduate who talks about it, who communicates it, brings it up way before she was elected. She's always hung her hat proudly being a graduate of Howard University. What impact has that had on your brand? Well, first and foremost, we are so proud of VP-elect <laughs> Kamala Harris. And um, it's just been such a pleasure to be this close to her transition from candidate to VP-elect on a, a national ticket to now um, just days away from becoming the vice president, the first black woman, first African, well, first black first woman to ascend to that role. And mm -hmm. um, it's been amazing. It's been amazing the amount of media attention and interest in Howard because of mm -hmm. the fact that she um, is an alum, a very proud alum of our institution, um, mm -hmm. as well as uh, what it's meaning to the students, um, particularly in a time like 2020, as it was being virtual and, and being able to turn on television and see someone that looks like you in such an impactful role. And like she has said herself, she won't be the last person to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But before her, there were so many people who paved the way through going to Howard University, like a Thurgood right. Marshall and so many other elected officials who have transcended through Howard to go into the political arena. Um, and we're big in the arts as well. We're big in the sciences. And while you may not end up knowing every single name, having her name out there demonstrates the power of an HBCU education so that I hope that we will be able to uh, in for good this conversation about what can an HBCU degree do for you because right. we've been doing the walk people like myself um, quietly for years to come and now she's doing it in a way publicly and visibly that everybody can relate to. Wow. Uh, I'm so glad you took the time to come on the show. Uh, before we leave, I talked a little bit about PR. People want to be in the PR field. It sounds so easy. It's about relationships, as you spoke earlier. Your opportunities were, were, were fueled by the relationship that you created. Uh, what is your career advice for aspiring young professionals that want to go into public relations? Well, I would definitely suggest that you take the time to intern throughout your college yeah. uh, career and experience. Mm -hmm. um, it was definitely something that was instilled in us at FAMU's J School that it was important to intern, but not only for you to have that on your resume to check it off, but also for you to get an opportunity to experience a variety of different companies and organizations to see what's a good fit for yourself. You don't want to end up being at your senior year, and that's mm -hmm. the first time you're going someplace to intern. If you can intern in the middle of the fall and spring semesters, definitely take the time to intern over the summer. And these days, a lot more internships are end up being paid opportunities than there were years ago when I was in school. So definitely take advantage of that. And then I would just also encourage you to follow your dreams and understand that the path from entry level to vice president or president is not always going to be a straight path, um, but it doesn't mean that it's something that you can't accomplish. Uh, there are going to be challenges along the way. There are going to be tests. 
that are going to happen in obstacles that's coming your way. But Mm -hmm. every test is an opportunity for a testimony. So just put your all into it, move forward, and eventually you'll have a story to tell about how you succeeded. Awesome. I want to thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations. Uh, I know that uh, you are a star behind the scenes. I hope I didn't put too much pressure with my questions, but you, you tell a great story and you take a great tell a great HBCU story. And my whole thing is about pulling those diamonds and you are a diamond. You are a person that a recognized success story, a millennial awards. You're looking like you NBA champion back then, Super Bowl champion in your cabinet. Thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations a lot of the time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. If you want to hear more interviews on Money Making Conversation, please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I am your host.